Today we're going to look at Revelation chapter 13. And uh, I guess what I'm going to suggest that you do as I read it, I think it's like a good exercise uh, anytime we're in the book of Revelation. Uh, I am going to suggest, uh, try to picture it in your minds uh, because it's written uh, very, um, I don't know, figuratively, a lot of images. And uh, if it helps you, maybe close your eyes. So this is Revelation chapter 13. Uh, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast, that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. All right, this is the word of the Lord. All right. I fooled some of you with that. <laughs> now, I want you to meet Counterfeit Sam, okay? Counterfeit Sam looks like me right? He has the same face. He has the same clothes. From your vantage point, he looks like the real thing. When he waved, I saw somebody wave back, right? <laughs> but guess what? He's not real, right? He's just a copy. Counterfeit Sam. He can't preach to you a message right now. I can't, I can't touch him right now. Uh, if you put your trust in counterfeit Sam, you'd be in a lot of trouble because counterfeit Sam has no substance, right? You will get hurt if you trust in counterfeit Sam. All right, let me turn that off. 
Zoom is amazing, right? That, that illustration only works because of Zoom. My kids are cracking up right now. All right, uh, here's the point, right? I was inspired by Miss Natalia's object lesson. That was an object lesson. Now counterfeits cause a lot of damage and a lot of loss. This is a message that's gonna be about counterfeits. Now, it is actually a very serious problem in the world, uh, you know, in business and even in health. So for example, as e-commerce has grown, uh, counterfeits have caused a lot of economic damage. There was this report produced by this group called Frontier Economics and they, they produced a report for the International Chamber of Commerce. And in that report, what they tried to do is they tried to measure the global economic impact of counterfeit goods. And this is what they estimate by 2022, that counterfeits will lead to an economic loss of somewhere between $30 billion to $54 billion, which uh, an equal job losses of about 4.2 to 5.4 million by 2022. So there is of course real damage being done uh, to companies because you know a company may spend a lot of money developing a product and marketing that product and only to have people then buy the counterfeit version of that product at a cheaper price on places like amazon and ebay and uh, not only that when the counterfeit is not good in quality then it actually spreads negative marketing of the product and stifles innovation so uh, people will start to rate that product with like a one star on amazon saying you know it stinks and that further hurts that particular product, which will hurt that company. So counterfeits have this devastating effect on businesses. Not only that, but counterfeits can have an adverse impact even on your health. So there's all kinds of counterfeit drugs out there. And the problem with taking a counterfeit drug is not only will it not address the ailment in which you're taking that drug for, but it can actually have ingredients in there that might cause you even greater harm. Now, I read that, you know, as these COVID-19 vaccines are being administered, uh, you know, there's warnings because there are some people who are trying to sell counterfeit versions of the vaccine on the black market. So the FDA has to give this warning, right? Do not buy COVID-19 vaccines on the black market because they are going to be fake. Can you imagine getting a counterfeit vaccine? You might think you're protected from COVID only to discover that your sense of security was based on something that was fake. And of course, that would have devastating effects on individuals and communities. Now, there's so many examples, plenty of examples in this world that we can look at to see the dangers of counterfeits. But I think you get the point. Counterfeits are a powerful way to steal, kill, and destroy. And those are the very things that Satan wants to do, which would mean and which would make counterfeiting a great strategy for Satan. Last week, we were introduced to the dragon who is called the devil. Right? And Satan, uh, the dragon and his angels were thrown down to earth because they were given this great blow on account of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so now it says the dragon is on the earth, but he is angry because he knows that his defeat is imminent and therefore his time is short. And so the dragon is going to use whatever time he has left before Jesus returns to consummate his final defeat in order to attack the church. Right? That's his goal. That's the dragon's goal. Now, we are continuing with that vision in this passage, uh, but in this chapter, now what we see emerging are two beasts, right? John sees two beasts emerging. The first beast rises out of the sea with 10 horns, seven heads, and 10 diadems on its horns. And that description should sound familiar because that is how the dragon was described in chapter 12. But the first beast is a distinct creature from the dragon, and yet he is also 
in the image of this dragon. Now to this beast, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Uh, one of its heads had this mortal wound, but it was healed. And the whole earth marveled and they worshiped the dragon and they worshiped the beast. Now, as you think about that imagery, is there something that sounds familiar about this beast, especially uh, as in relation to the dragon? You know, the beast images the dragon. The beast is given power and authority. The beast has a wound that is healed and the beast receives worship along with the dragon. It sounds familiar because this beast is a counterfeit of the second person of the Trinity. This beast is a counterfeit of Jesus. Uh, in Colossians 1.15, there's this little poem or hymn about Jesus, and it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So as Jesus images the invisible God, the beast images this dragon. Uh, John 5.27, Jesus talks about how the Father has given authority to the Son of Man to execute judgment. As the Father gives authority to the Son, the dragon gives authority to this beast. As Jesus was slain and raised to new life, the beast has this mortal wound that is healed, which is a parody of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So this is a counterfeit, right, of Jesus. Now, is there a counterfeit version of the Holy Spirit? Uh, sure, there is, right? And that's the second beast in the second half of this passage, starting at verse 11. John sees another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon, the beast is later identified as the false prophet in chapter 16. And this second beast performs great signs like the Holy Spirit. It promotes the worship of the beast like the Holy Spirit promotes the worship of Jesus. And the second beast bears witness to false truths as it deceives those who dwell on earth, whereas the actual Holy Spirit guides us into truth. So what are we seeing here with the emergence of these two beasts? It's a counterfeit of the triune God, right? The dragon counterfeits the father, the first beast counterfeits the son, and the second beast counterfeits the Holy Spirit. And the reason why Satan has to uh, produce a counterfeit is because he has no real creative power because he is not God. Satan has no real authority because he is not God. And therefore the best that he can do is become a fake parody of God because he cannot be God himself. Now, on the one hand, that is a good thing because counterfeits are never as good as uh, the original, the real, or the true. So Satan is never as powerful as the true and living God, which means he will always be inferior to God in every way. Uh, if we are on God's side or if God is on our side, then we actually have no reason to be afraid of Satan because in the end, he is simply an inferior counterfeit. On the other hand, counterfeits actually can be very deceptive. And those who put their trust in counterfeits will be ensnared by Satan and have the mark of the beast 666. Now, that number, 666, that's a pretty famous number, uh, even in popular culture. Uh, I remember the church that I grew up in was located in Teaneck, New Jersey. And the zip code uh, of Teaneck, New Jersey is 07 
666, right? <laughs> I thought, oh no, this town is evil. Why is our church in this town? Um, but that's, that's not the right way to approach or to think about this number, right? It's not meant to uh, conjure up some kind of superstition. But in the book of Revelation, right, numbers are not meant to be taken literally, but they are always figurative or symbolic of something else. So if you remember the number 144,000, what did that represent? The community of the redeemed, because 12, 144,000 is uh, 12 times 12,000. Uh, 12 is a figurative number for wholeness. You have the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. We had uh, 1,260 days and 42 months, which we also see repeated in this passage. Uh, and these are not literal periods of time, but they are borrowed visionary language from the book of Daniel to represent this period of tribulation. So numbers in the book of Revelation are not literal. And similarly, the number 666 is not something that we are taking literally. But why is 666 the mark of the beast? There's a lot of theories out there, uh, but this is what I think, right? The number three signifies completeness as expressed by the completeness of the triune God. The number seven also represents completeness as we have seen over and over again in the book of Revelation, right? Seven is a very uh, popular number in this book. So if God were to be represented by a number, it would probably be seven, 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 right? Three sevens because it would represent divine perfection. But the best that the beast can do is what one commentator calls uh, completeness of sinful incompleteness. So while bearing three numbers, the best that the beast can do is bear an incomplete number six, right? Doesn't quite hit that complete number seven, that perfect number seven. And that number further emphasized Satan's attempt to image the perfect and the true God, but falling short and becoming rather a poor counterfeit or a poor imitation of God. Now, the first beast and the second beast, uh, what they do is they attack in uh, different ways. So the imagery of the first beast suggests that he uses uh, the state in order to attack and persecute the people of God. You have this first beast is rising out of the sea and uh, also bears images to these different animals. Uh, these same animals are mentioned in Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7, except uh, one key difference, the four beasts in Daniel chapter 7, uh, they represent, uh, they're four separate beasts and distinct beasts, and they represent specific earthly kingdoms that persecuted the people of God, such as Babylon and Persia and Greece and uh, possibly Rome. Now, this vision in Revelation, I think, picks up on that. Only rather than four separate beasts, all four animals are now found in this one beast from the sea. And I think we can draw the inference and say that the beasts that worked through those kingdoms of Babylon, Persia, and Greece, and Rome to persecute the people of God were ultimately or originally the work of the same beast um, according to this vision. We could even say that even today when there are modern states that persecute the church, right, such as the Chinese Communist Party or the Iranian state or the North Korean state, it is the work of the beast. And that is... Uh, reinforced by the exhortation in verse 10 to the saints, which is actually a quote from the prophet Jeremiah. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. There have been and will always be people who will be killed on account of their faith or imprisoned on, our, on account of their faith. 
they will be killed on account of the work of this first beast who will use the state to threaten and to kill the people of God. But the call for the saints is to endure even in the face of captivity and death because their loss in the period of tribulation will ultimately translate into victory and a conquering over Satan, which will ultimately come to fruition when Jesus returns. Now, this first beast tries to force false worship right through the oppression of the state. So for the original recipients uh, of the book of Revelation in Asia Minor, uh, there was a great deal of pressure to worship the emperor. Uh, and there was a lot of uh, persecution if they refused. That's what the first beast wants, false idolatrous worship. That's what we see in verse 4 when the whole earth worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? It's false worship. The temporary power of the state to persecute the people of God makes it seem as though this beast is omnipotent, all-powerful. But again, as a counterfeit, he has no true power, right? Even when it seems like the state is powerful and really uh, hurting the church through um, outward persecution, at the end of the day, the beast is only allowed to exercise a authority for a temporary period of time and that time is short and will come to an end at the return of christ so you can see how this would be an encouragement to especially the original readers who are being persecuted endure right press on uh, i know life is hard i know things are happening uh, to you that are not good and are painful but endure in your faith overcome uh, the beast now there's a second beast here that emerges, right? And this second beast has the same goal, but utilizes kind of a different tactic, right? Utilizes a false prophetic witness. Uh, this beast performs great signs and makes fire come down out of heaven. And these are allusions to Moses and Elijah. Uh, Moses represents uh, the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And together they represent the witness of the true word of God to the people of God. And so what the second beast is doing is bringing a false word through deception. And, you know, some commentators even think that this is actually specific to the church. The second beast will infiltrate the church and bring deception uh, to the church. Now, if you remember um, last year, we went through a series on 1 John and John talked about antichrists, right? These antichrists were, it wasn't one singular person, we said, but it was the false teachers who had infiltrated the church community, creating confusion and creating division on account of their false teaching. And that's the second beast. And I think the way deception works is it appeals to the desires of the heart. So the reason why Adam and Eve ate the apple is because the serpent appealed to the desires of their heart to be like God, knowing good and evil. And that's why false teaching is not just a matter of the intellect, but is a matter of the heart. The best teachers and the best theologians are not going to be the ones who have the greatest intellectual gifts, but the best teachers and theologians are going to be the ones who have uh, love for God and who worship him. The best teachers and theologians are going to be the ones who walk in obedience to God and have a desire to be faithful to him. And then their intellectual gifts will be used in service of the one whom they worshipped. Now, uh, by the way, literature has a very, I think, powerful way of making a point. And uh, the way that these two beasts wage war, it actually reminds me of a book I read uh, a long time ago called Amusing Ourselves to Death by uh, Neil Postman. Now, this book was published in 1985. 
uh, but it's actually gotten more attention, uh, especially recently because of how accurate uh, this, this guy's, I think he's a communications professor, but uh, how accurate his predictions were about the impact of electronic media uh, on our society. And, uh, you know, the reason why I thought about it again is because I heard uh, Tristan ha Harris quote it in one of his interviews. Uh, if you don't know who Tristan Harris is, uh, he's like one of the featured people in the documentary, The Social, Me uh, the Social Dilemma. And, um, you know, he, in this documentary, he basically talks about how he used to work at Google and he was on the Gmail team. And, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of having all these discussions, what color should we make certain things and how should we structure and make certain things look. And all with the goal of, you know, how do we get people to kind of be on Gmail even longer? And he said he found it interesting that as they were discussing how to make Gmail better, nobody was discussing how to make it less addicting. And because he himself was very addicted to his own email, uh, he was concerned that all of these young engineers in their 20s and 30s uh, were creating something that, um, that's going to be uh, addicting, uh, but not really thinking about the social impact of what they were creating. So he has this line about tools. He says, you know, if something is a tool, uh, it's waiting there to be used. But if something is not a tool, uh, it wants things from you. And he says, we've moved away from having a tools-based technology environment to an environment that uses addiction and manipulation. And so his mission uh, and his organization is basically to educate uh, the public uh, in regards to the way right, technology is designed and the way uh, it's meant to suck us in and keep us on our phones uh, longer and, and the ways that it's basically enslaved us, right? So anyway, uh, I, you know, he's somebody that intrigues me and I like uh, listening to him talk. And uh, I was listening to an interview that he gave and he read a quote from this Neil Postman book. And uh, let, me, let me read it for you. Now, keep in mind, this was written in 1985, okay? In 1985, uh, right, life was very different. Cold War stuff was happening. And uh, I guess people were very concerned about the, the rise of Big Brother. So this is what Neil Postman writes. He says, we were keeping our eye on 1984. By the way, I'm going to read three paragraphs, so bear with me. When the year came and the prophecy didn't, thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves. The roots of liberal democracy had held. Wherever else the terror had happened, we at least had not been visited by Orwellian nightmares, but we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another, slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Contrary to the common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Or Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy and the centrifugal bumble puppy. I don't know what any of that means, by the way. Uh, as Huxley remarked in Brave New World Revisited, 
The civil libertarians and rationalists who are ever on the alert to oppose tyranny fail to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In 1984, Huxley added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. Um, by the way, it's like fascinating. Every time uh, Tristan Harris reads like that quote, the reaction of the interviewers was like, oh, right? Especially knowing it was written in 1985. Uh, how prophetic and how accurate its description in many ways. Now, when I read uh, actually these contrasting visions of George Orwell and Aldous Huxley, it, it actually reminded me of these two beasts, right? One works through uh, power and fear, like Big Brother, while the other works through deception and targets the affections of the heart. Now, uh, I know it's not necessarily an exact correlation, but it did make me wonder if these two great literary authors, uh, Orwell and Huxley, maybe unintentionally saw something spiritually true about how Satan works, right? How he works to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, this beast is allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And as we said before, it's not literal 42 months, but this is a period of tribulation uh, between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And it's the age that we live in right now which means now is a time where we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Now is a time where Satan will use his uh, counterfeit uh, powers or authority to force idol worship through, right, for some, fear of persecution through the state, and for others, through a counterfeit witness and in order to deceive the people of God into idolatry. That means this is the age where the church, where the people of God, has to resist the schemes of the devil. If it's in the form of outward persecution, we have to endure it and remain faithful. If it's uh, in the form of deception through false teaching, we have to be discerning and we have to reject it. Right? It's only when we know the, the original, right? the true power, true joy, true love, genuine truth that we will be able to um, discern the counterfeits. And where are these things found? Well, of course, in God himself, right? The truth of these things are found in the true and living God because God sits on his throne and he wields true, genuine power and authority. God himself personifies love and truth in his being. And when we know God, then we know real love and real truth. We will also be able to identify a counterfeit based on its fruit because Satan steals, kills, and destroys, but God does not. God gives an abundance of grace. He raises the dead to life, and he restores and redeems that which is broken. That is his heart's desire, and that's all encapsulated by the message of the gospel, which is why, you know, John's advice in 1 John against the Antichrist is, you know, let both the testimony of the apostles and the presence of God abide in you. The more you abide with God in prayer and worship, the better you will be able to engage in spiritual warfare. Now, let's see what time it is. It's uh, 11.16. I think I'm done with the sermon, but I want to add an appendix. <laughs> so let me add an appendix about uh, the importance of uh, spiritual disciplines like prayer and worship. Uh, you know, I've, I've been saying this whole time throughout the book of Revelation. I think Revelation is helpful because we live in a secular age and, uh, you know, thinking things from a spiritual pr perspective, I don't think comes as naturally to people living in a secular age. 
but it's incredibly important. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Pastor John actually, he recommended that I check out this author named Francis McNutt. Francis McNutt was a, is an interesting guy because uh, he started out as a Roman Catholic priest and he had some pretty impressive academic credentials. He, you know, he graduated from Harvard with honors. He, had a, he earned a master's uh, from Catholic University of America and, and then earned a PhD in theology. Uh, but then in 1967, you know, as a Catholic priest, um, let me, right, as a Catholic priest, he was invited to this uh, charismatic Protestant retreat, right, where he had this powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit. And uh, someone told him that he would bring healing prayer back to the Catholic Church. And so uh, when he returned, he began to pray for the sick. And he found that uh, as he prayed for the sick, many of them uh, ended up getting healed. And so he became actually one of the first Roman Catholic priests who got involved in the charismatic movement of the 1960s and 1970s. Now, he, he wrote a book. He wrote a couple books, actually, but he wrote a book that I read uh, about deliverance from evil spirits. And it had a good mixture of theology and practice. Now, I imagine not many people are going to read a book like this because uh, we live, again, we live in a secular age. And unless they're already convicted of the connection between the spiritual realm and our embodied experience, uh, it probably won't seem like a very useful book. But if you assume that there is a connection, then you might be somebody who would read that kind of book. And there's a part where he talks about deliverance, not just of individuals, but of places. And I was really intrigued by that topic because actually it's a topic that uh, I wrote about on my last paper uh, when I focused on the role of place in, in Christian ministry. And he says, you know, within Christianity, there's generally been like two kinds of approaches to the nature of evil um, responses to evil in, in society, right? Societal evil. The first approach understands uh, that, you know, personal evil spirits are at work who occupy certain areas or territories, and those territories need deliverance from those evil spirits using spiritual weapons like worship and uh, the word and prayer. And the second approach sees the problem not so much as these personal uh, evil spirits, but just generic evil forces that have embedded sin into our systems and our institutions. And so they would start by saying, you know, we just need to reform or tear down our systems in order to be free from the tyranny of sin or evil. Now, McNutt is not saying it's uh, one or the other. He's actually saying, you know, you need both approaches to adequately deal with evil in the world. But with that said, he says, those who don't have an understanding of the spiritual nature of systemic evil will never be able to successfully destroy the kingdom of Satan. And I only mention that because again, in a secular age, I think the second approach is more palatable to most people, right? Reform systems or tear down systems. But that first approach will probably seem a little bit superstitious, I imagine, to even some of you here today. So if Satan wants to produce false worship, then the church needs to devote itself to true worship. If the beast and the dragon want worship, then we need to resist false worship and engage in true worship. And that's why it's, it's one of the ways we engage in spiritual warfare. And if we can resist the spirit of the beast, then perhaps we change the spiritual climate because the spirit of the beast gets weaker and weaker. Uh, again, in a secular age, that sounds weird, especially when you attach, uh, attach it to actual problems, like, for example, racism, right? Pray and worship to dismantle racism. And people would say, what? What is that going to do? Well, so I began to think and uh, I said, well, all right, if we think about the problem of race from a sociological perspective, you know, there's a sociologist named Peter Berger. 
And uh, one of the things that he does in one of his books, he shows how systems can start to take on a life of its own. And you have these certain values that are externalized into an institution. And as a system forms uh, those who are become part of that system, then those external values become internalized into the people. And uh, you kind of have this like right cycle where the system takes on a life of its own. So if the people who inputted those initial values are even uh, are gone, right, long gone, uh, it kind of doesn't matter because the values uh, still live on because that system is shaping uh, those values within people. So as it relates to race, you know, for example, if like white supremacist values a long time ago were externalized into institutions uh, and those values uh, uh, are in there, then they can continue to form and shape people who are part of that system. And then hence you have a group of people who say our, our systems are racist. Now I'm in school, right? So I'm, I'm learning this from my professor and the professor that I'm studying under for my degree, uh, he, he takes that and he says, well, it's actually not enough to tear down systems because systems have been torn down only to have the same dysfunctions keep coming up. So even though uh, slavery was abolished, a new system came up of Jim Crow. Uh, even though Jim Crow is gone, uh, what emerged was a system of mass incarceration of African-Americans. So he says, even if you demolish one system, uh, the one that replaces it may still be dysfunctional because there is an underlying narrative that is driving these systems. And until you change the underlying narrative, the systems that emerge will continue to be dysfunctional. All right, that's the sociological perspective. So here's a question I ask. How do you change the narrative, right? If that's the key, how do you change the narrative? How do you change people's imaginations uh, in terms of being able to uh, see things in a new way that's not dysfunctional? And you know what his answer was? That's a good question. I'm trying to figure that out. <laughs> and uh, you know, I think a lot of people are probably trying to figure that out. And I am sure there's ways to facilitate that. But then what I thought about were the first century Jews. And I asked, well, how did first century Jews all of a sudden go from believing in a narrative where God's going to restore the nation of Israel through a political Messiah to now believing a narrative where the Messiah was crucified and resurrected from the dead in order to usher in a new kingdom that is disconnected from the uh, earthly politics of Israel. And I guess I would suggest uh, their narrative changed because the Holy Spirit changed their paradigm, right? Through the resurrected Christ. Uh, in other words, God changed the narrative. So now combine, combine these two things and I say, well, what if what people call narratives is really the context for spiritual warfare? After all, God had his narrative, but it wasn't until the serpent entered and challenged that narrative that Adam and Eve succumbed to that uh, temptation and fell. So perhaps one of the ways we can deal with societal evils is by attacking it at its spiritual foundations. And of course, not to negate the work of reformation or reforming our systems, because even Francis McNutt would say that's important too. But if the figurative picture in Revelation depicts a literal spiritual reality, right, and a literal spiritual war, and the beasts are attacking our institutions and our affections through maybe a false narrative, right, then perhaps the work of the church is to engage in spiritual warfare through our worship and refuse worship to the beasts and make sure that the true and the living God receives all the worship, right? Maybe then the way we engage in spiritual warfare is we, we need to be a people of prayer and we need to proclaim the testimonies of God and his word, right? The spiritual disciplines. 
And uh, I guess the way I think about it, you know, a lot of uh, organizations are going to work for reform and, um, you know, that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, but only the church is actually going to um, deal with some of these things on a spiritual level, right? <laughs> so the work of the church, we, we have to do it. I know a lot of you care about some of the, the stuff that's going on in the world. Um, are we being faithful and engaging in war at the spiritual level, right? Because I think some of these things, maybe only God can change, even the narrative. Maybe only God can change the narrative. Uh, but we have to fight... Uh, we have to fight Satan and we have to fight his attacks, but we can fight it from a place of victory because his time is short. He knows he's going to lose. We know Jesus is going to win. That's what revelation is about. And so therefore we can fight confidently knowing that there will be victory. And even, uh, you know, we don't live in a, a oppressive state right now where we're persecuted by the government and thrown in jail and killed on account of our faith. But even if that were the case, we could resist even to the point of death because there is something after that. There is victory even after bodily death because there is a resurrection in Christ. And so that's my appendix. So uh, kind of a one and a half sermons today, uh, a little bit long, but um, that's okay. You have nowhere to go, I think. <laughs> Let me pray. <clears throat> uh, God, we... You know, we really want to, um, we ask God that you would open our eyes to see things um, from a spiritual perspective and to be able to see spiritual realities. And, you know, because we are so formed and shaped by uh, the air that we breathe around us, um, you know, for us, especially in this age, it's uh, maybe not so easy to uh, live according to that and to, you know, to, to believe in the power of uh, prayer and worship and to uh, to even speak words of truth um, and authority, uh, Jesus's words and casting out evil spirits and uh, engaging in warfare against them. And, uh, you know, if this is like, you know, if this is something that's foreign to us or even uncomfortable to us, uh, I, I do pray, God, that you would uh, help us to see uh, because we can't see on our own, but we really do need uh, the Holy Spirit to reveal to us uh, the real nature of things, the, the things that are unseen. And uh, we know that in the things that are unseen, uh, it doesn't mean that they have no connection to our uh, bodily experience, but quite the opposite. Uh, the spiritual does relate to the lives that we live today and now. And so help us to, um, to see those things and to um, to resist uh, the attacks of the evil one, um, to resist our affections from being lulled, uh, that you know our hearts would kind of be inclined towards uh, false idolatrous worship. But we want to worship the true and the living God. Uh, we want to make sure that uh, you alone receive the glory and the honor and the blessing and the power. Uh, because you are no counterfeit. You are the true, true living God. You are the true creator, the one who sits upon the throne. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.